From Western Sound and ACAST Studios, this is The Score, Season 1, The Bank Robber Diaries. We're going 15 episodes to figure out how a man named Joe Loya became one of Southern California's most prolific bank robbers. And then, what happened next? I'm Ben Adair, and this is Episode 1, First Time Out. How much had you planned this all out in advance? Like, None. What did you know going None. into it? How are you going to go in? How are you going to get away? None. 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 I mean, you can't just rob a bank with no plan, can you? What I do remember about the day is this. I started 10, I walked into the first bank, and I grab a a slip, and I write, we have a bomb, this is a bank robbery, and I wrote a bank robbery note. And then I'm like, ah, fuck it, I don't want to do this here. For some reason, this doesn't feel right. So I start walking away, and as I walk away, there's like three cameras at me at the door. And I realized, they, I could have been busted, right? If anyone just kind of like, you know, zoomed in on the guy who was writing something on the back of that slip, they could have seen I was trying to rob that bank. So I wrote my next one, um, next note at McDonald's. <laughs> just, I wrote it there, and I would walk into banks, and I would leave them all day long, you know? Like, I would walk in, and I would stand in line, go a couple steps up, a couple customers would be going, and I'd be like, nah, I don't got a feel for this. I'd walk in, I'd see, you know, guards. Nah, I'm gone. I swear to God, man, I probably nibbled a little bit of food from every fast food joint available at the time. KFC, Wendy's. If this was a short film, it would be a comic film because you would see me going in there, okay, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. And the next day you see me drinking coffee at McDonald's. <laughs> next day you see me, okay, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna get all fucking nervy in there. The next scene I'm biting the Whopper at Burger King. Like it would just be, okay, let's do it, let's do it. Taco Bell. <laughs> let's do it, let's do it. Wendy's. It was like, it was fucking hilarious. What were you feeling inside? Fear. I was just like, at this point, I'm not going to jail, just standing in line thinking about robbing a bank. When I go do this next thing, this is the real thing. So I know that on the other side of this is a payoff, a big payoff. Because when you run past your fear, then it cannot harass you anymore. On this side of it, it's a big dark menacing curtain and it's saying try to come back here see what the fuck's gonna happen here you're like i don't know if i want to open that curtain oh fuck once you open that curtain that curtain fucking evaporates there's no more curtain you can turn around like where's that fucking curtain it was menacing me there's no curtain and that's what you have to do you have to push past your fear to get to the next level but right now, walking in and out of these banks, all you're day staring long. at that curtain. Oh, that curtain's just like ah, taunting me, you fucking punk. And I knew that I had this in me where I could cough up a nutsack and do something if I need to do it. Now, all day I wasn't coughing up the nutsack. I, all day I was not calling up my courage. It would just go so, it would only get me so far and then it would peter out. But I was like, this point, I was like, this is what we're doing it. We're doing it right now. Fuck all the bullshit. Let's go do this. Part one, first time out. Okay, so I'm sitting here in the studio. This is Ben Adair, and I'm sitting here in the studio with Joe Loya. Hi, Joe. Hey, Ben. Uh, Joe, today you're wearing a sort of a black pullover shirt. You've got black glasses, silver goatee. Normally you have a City of Oakland baseball cap on. Right here. 
yeah on the chair next to you how do, how, do, how do you describe yourself to people i say i'm fluffy <laughs> i mean i don't say i'm fat but i'm very heavy i mean you're living so large I'm yeah, yeah i'm living large. i'm existing large i don't know about a living like yeah but so um i'm a i'm a thick man uh, Mexican man, dark skin, you know, and uh, late fifties, late fifties, yeah, easy to say. I, I, I mean, looking at you now, you're charming. I don't think people would understand that you used to break school records and track, though. Nobody is the. My friend Danny Gallegos once said, he said, "Man, you look like you ate that guy." <laughs> <laughs> I showed him a photo of me when I was 18 years old. He says, man, you look like you ate that guy. I mean, which that's what I look like. But let's get back into it. It's 1984. You've never robbed a bank before. You've committed crimes, but mostly small stuff, fraud, stealing cars. Enough that has gotten the attention of the cops. You're wanted by police. So you've been hiding out in Tijuana. Uh, You've driven up to San Diego from Tijuana. You're in a stolen car. And you're walking in and out of banks all day. Mm-hmm. But now it's deadline time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so finally, 4.45, I got to rob this bank. I know it. There's no getting around it. We're doing it right now. I don't have a choice. I stand in line. I have my note. I go to the line. Say, hey, how are you doing, sir? I said, I'm fine. How are you doing? As I'm walking over, let everybody like see us and then let not, not pay attention to us. And as I walk up there, I slide the note to her. She puts it, I put it down on the table. I slide it to her. She looks down at it and she reads it and reads it and reads it. <laughs> I has plenty of time to have read it, turned it over, copied it, turned it back over, read it again, like too long. So I reach forward and I realize I got to get her attention. So I grab the note. And I move it around a little bit, like, hey, let's do something about this. And she still won't look up. So I had to pull the note away from her because I realized, oh, shit, I've given her something to to distract her. She does not want to look up, and she doesn't have to look up. So I tried to pull the note back, and she tries to pull the note to her. And when she's pulling the note, we're doing this little bullshit tug of war. Now I'm just fucking pissed. So I lean forward and say... I'm not fucking around. I'll jump the counter. And I reach down like I got a gun. And I pat my waistband like I'm coming over. I will fuck you up for this bullshit stuff. And it was in that moment she looks up. And just with my eyes, I menace her. And then when she looked at me, she saw I was serious. She opened her drawer and just gave me the money. Now, I put on the table, on the uh, counter, I put a fanny pack. You know, not like kind of like goofy little tiny dinky fanny packs, but like it, in the, the fanny pack had become sophisticated at that point, so there's a lot of different sizes. It was a kind of good size fanny pack. I start throwing the money in it, and I tell her, good, and I walk away. So then you get the money, you take the fanny, you pick up the fanny pack. I walk away with my fanny, zipping it up. I, I'm walking away like I just did banking. I'm not like running. I'm not like, ah, I just ran out of the place, you know? No energy other than, you know, walk away. I turn around to walk out of the bank like I'm a customer just finished my transaction. I get to the door, and before I can even walk out the door, somebody yells, he robbed the bank. He robbed us. And so I start running. And I mean, I run. I'm bending over, driving my arms, and I'm high-stepping it. And I'm running to 
that far away at the end of the block I knew there was a trolley station there was a cab there and I jumped into the cab pulled away from these guys kept looking back and they were like in the beginning they were chasing after me in earnest and then they realized there's no catching me this this jackrabbit's gone, 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 gone. so I get in the car tell him to get me to San Ysidro he drops me off on the other side of the uh, freeway in San Ysidro and then I walk over a, a bridge to where I had my hotel room. So I get inside my room, and obviously the first thing I'm excited to do is figure out how much money I got. It looked like a lot of money. And uh, so I start counting the money. I break up the 20s, the 50s, the 100s, the 5s, the 10s, the way I always did. And then I say, like, okay, let's count it, because this looks good. And sure enough, $4,500. Oh man, it, was glor- it felt glorious. So, Joe, at this point in your life, you'd earn money legally working at various jobs, and you'd earn money illegally. What's the difference in how that feels? <laughs> now, that question right there, man, that's Bonnaroo question. That's a great question. Okay, so already when I was in college, I used to think I did this math and thought, you know, I'm going to get out of college. I'm going to do four years. Uh, I'm going to be working through college because don't, we don't have a lot of money. And when I get out, what do I think I might get? start off at $40,000? Maybe fifty dollars if I'm lucky? I don't know, but I don't think that I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to have to do that over a year of work. And one of the reasons I went into crime was I thought, no, a guy who has that kind of gumption, he should be getting paid buckets of money. I felt like this, this is what my time is worth. So this money already felt so much better. It felt like I, I got it based on my wit on my ferocity. I was getting paid for fucking heart. And also, I love the, the cleanness of it. Like everyone's like, oh, okay, we're gonna go do this game where we exchange money all the time in life and then we all die. Here, I'm gonna get it, here's a paycheck. And oh, okay, then here, I'm gonna go buy food and we're all cha- exchanging money and then we die. And I felt like, man, we've been duped. <laughs> this is no way to fucking live. But if we're gonna be having exchanges of money, let's make it this way. Hi, you have a lot of money? Give me your fucking shit. Now it's my money. Bye. Just give me the money. That's what I want. Bye. It's just clean. And it was fast, and it was commiserate to my time. That's great. I love getting $4,000, $5,000 for five minutes of work. I felt like that's I should be getting that every day of my life. Every five minutes of my life. <laughs> So I was happy. It's like I don't have to be a petty criminal ever again. I never have to steal a snicker bar, a shirt. I never have to defraud anybody. If I owe somebody 50 bucks, I get to give them 50 bucks. I get to be honorable now in, in my life except for this one thing. Because I'm a bank robber now, I'm going to rob banks. That's all I'm going to do. So you spend the night in your hotel, and then the next morning you're going to go to Mexico, cross the border, even though you're wanted for a bunch of petty crimes all over Southern California, and even though you're in a stolen car. I mean, how are you feeling? I was happy. I went to Kmart on the, you know, right there, there was a mall. It's not there anymore, but it was a Kmart. And I went in there, and I got me a big case of Dr. Pepper because, you know, I had all that cash. I'm like, ah, look at me. I'm living like a king. Love Dr. Pepper, man. That was my drink. And uh, I get on the freeway, the last on-ramp, and then there was traffic, a lot of traffic. And I go, oh, okay, this is weird. I just anticipated just kind of driving through because I've driven through here before you just drive through. 
I was like, I don't know, maybe morning traffic. I don't know what the problem is. And then I realized there's a ton of police officers up here. And then as you get closer and closer, I realized they're stopping every car. They're looking at everyone's ID. I don't realize in the moment, but it would come clear very quickly that they were looking for stolen cars going into Mexico. And they get me in my stolen car. I don't have, you know, registration for it. Uh, it comes up stolen. They arrest me. They take my fingerprints. And that comes back, Joe Loya wanted in five counties in Southern California. So they arrest me. I go to jail. They take my $4,500. Highway Patrol is trying to figure out if I did any crimes that this money belonged to. They determined it didn't. And so they had to give it back to me. Is there like a an incident or a or a, a thing you did that you can pinpoint as this was the beginning? So if we're talking about the beginning of crime. You don't begin with what people would think is what's the first thing you stole? It's not stealing. It's when did you realize I want to transgress? I want to do something and try and get away with it. It could be a lie. It could be thievery. It could be what I think, when I think of it, was when my mother was sick. We had to stay with um, Mr. Luttrell. He was my teacher. He is His apartment, he was single, his apartment was in the back of the school. And he had to correct papers and stuff like that. So after school, we would stay sometimes at his place. And I remember... He said, don't eat anything, don't do, you know, just sit there and wait, do your homework. And I remember thinking, it's my Christian teacher, super, super moralistic. I'm not supposed to do anything here. So I did everything I could. I checked all his drawers. I would go into his kitchen, his pantry, and there was all these boxes of Ritz crackers and sunflower seeds and and he was so neat his boxes were all flush facing the same way like he lived like that and I remember thinking everything I get I have to put it back exactly like I saw it like I got it I remember breaking the rules in his place and trying to make sure that he would not be able to catch me and Mr. Luttrell was a very important figure in my life because of how hyper-moralistic he was. So when I was breaking the rules, it wasn't I was just breaking the rules. I was breaking the rules against somebody who, in my imagination, was lording his self-righteousness over me. I'll give an example. My mom's sick. My grades start to plummet. I'm traumatized. I'm anxious. I'm scared. I'm feeling desperate. Um, morality is all a mess. Um, and so I go to pick up my car. He says, Loya, Joe Loya. And I come up, walk up, because that was when you like pick up your report card from the at the desk. And he would just sit there behind his desk and hand it out to you. You'd have to come and get it. And when I went to reach for my report card, I went to pull it. And he held on to it. And I was like, oh, I'm not 
I thought you wanted to give me kind of thing. And I look at him and he's looking at me and he's menacing me. No, you should have been doing better. I'm not happy with your performance. It has that look. Like, uh, tension, punishment, judgment. And I remember being like, oh, that's too much. That's, why did he have to do that? He felt I was being refractory, like I was a rebellious kid. And I felt like, wow, for a man of God, you sure have no fucking compassion. And so I fucking hated that dude. And now we're in his house. And I know that if he knew that I was doing things he didn't want me to do, he'd be pissed. I'm like, well, fuck you. I'm going to do <laughs> I mean, there's, there's all this intentionality to it. And so it wasn't a crime. But I remember very consciously thinking, I mean, I'm remembering now. I'm remembering looking at his shoes in his closet. I'm remembering the pantry door and the way everything was organized. I'm remembering, I remember how it was kind of set up. It was a big deal for me to do what I was doing intentionally violating every rule I was supposed to do in there, in his meticulous house. Uh, years later, when I was in prison and I wanted to go beat some guy up and I went into the chapel, I had to pull out a lot of memories of humiliations growing up. And one of the memories I always pull out, it was good to ignite the rage in me, was a Mr. Luttrell. I felt so humiliated by him that I wish, I was like, oh, when I get out, I hope I see that man. Was it the memory of him holding the... Yeah, the car, the, the, report, the report card, the way card. he looked at me. The way he menaced me. Just like I menaced that woman when I tried to grab that note from her. And yeah, she that's went, what I was thinking. And it's I like, just like, yeah, fuck you. Give me that fucking money. Yeah, and you see, that's what I'm saying. That malice that he expressed towards me, he's not supposed to be expressing that toward a kid. He's in the wrong. I knew he was in the wrong, and he didn't. He thought... I'm allowed to give you this. I'm a man. It's 1968. And I'm a white man. You're a brown kid. And this is how it's going to go. And we're religious. This is how we treat each other. Years later, I get an email from Mr. Luttrell. I saw you. It's after my book came out. I was promoting my book. I saw you. Oh, it's so good to see that. I don't know if you remember me. And I said, hey, Mr. Luttrell, you actually made it in my book. I remember you. I did. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should buy it. He says, oh, I'll buy it right now. I said, great. I'd love to hear what you think about it. I never heard back from Because <laughs> oh. in the book, when I talk about that, I talk about, I wish I would meet Mr. Luttrell now in a dark alley. Or when I was when I was a criminal, I wished I'd, I would meet him. I said, I'd just be able to have a minute or two to just... You know, get back at him with a two-by-four. I was so mad. That guy just ignited so much rage at me. We'll be right back. Joe, he knows how to make people love him. And he knows how to use language. Some people might feel manipulated by that, but I don't mind being manipulated because I don't mind it. Um, and it sounds like maybe you got something out of it. I totally got something out of it. I mean, Joe changed my life. Part of making this podcast, we've talked to a lot of people from Joe Loya's past. People who knew Joe before he was a robber, people who knew him after. Anne Heffron met Joe when he was just starting out. 
Joe wasn't like anyone I'd ever met before. And um, I was this good girl who didn't necessarily want to be a good girl. And so when a hot Mexican bank robber comes to work in your restaurant, uh, you perk up. (laughs) Joe came in and he's so full of life. Super dynamic, super self-assured, and he paid attention to me. And um, I like that. How did you get to know him? There's a lot of time in the restaurant business where you're just kind of standing around. When I was waiting tables and we were just, like, I was folding napkins and he was standing there. Or um, he just was super jovial. Like, super, super up. Super funny. Joe, he loves women. So if you're working in a restaurant, you're surrounded by women, generally. Right? But also... If I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure he held a knife to someone in the freezer. Maybe someone had said something to his girlfriend or... So there was also this rogue kind of piece of him um, that made him even that much more interesting. We started talking and he liked that I knew books. And then he was really well read, so he would start quoting from Nietzsche. We would talk about writing after work. I think we tried to encourage each other and to say, you know, why don't we show each other our work? Um, And the whole time I'm like, be my boyfriend, be my boyfriend, be my boyfriend, be my boyfriend. Right? But, you know, he has his girlfriend. I'm like, I'm going to be his girlfriend. I'm going to be his girlfriend. Be my boyfriend, be my boyfriend. And then... There was a, we had a Christmas party. Some of the busboys were flirting with me and Joe came and he just like swept me up and he took me out of that party. And then we went back to my place. And for that night, I was his girlfriend. Was that night your first kiss with Joe? I bet it was. Um, so I was living in North Hollywood over this, um, this bookie, this bookie's house. And I was living in the upstairs apartment and, Joe came over and we're walking up the stairs and then um, we put on Peter Gabriel, I think, in your eyes and we're dancing. And I just thought that, I know, that was so um, beautiful. And then, and then we got naked. (laughs) But the dancing part was really sweet. You're supposed to say, and then we kiss. Oh, yeah, then we kiss. Even at that. You don't have to be naked to kiss. Maybe, <laughs> it's going to change my whole life. Maybe I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> you have clothes on when you kiss. So weird. <laughs> Call me old-fashioned. Call you overdressed. <laughs> Call me overdressed. You know, I wasn't really experienced. I hadn't had a lot of sex. So, like, hormonally, that I attached. I felt like the girl that wasn't chosen normally, and I felt chosen by Joe. And even though he had a girlfriend, I still felt chosen. And it was helpful that I was adopted because a lot of adopted people have a low sense of self-esteem. So that worked. That worked in his. That made it okay because it made sense to me that, well, of course, I'm not his girlfriend, but 
right? Like, I'm not good enough to be his girlfriend, but I'm the second girlfriend. Or you can be, like, the side hustle. Yeah, the side hustle. And maybe, like, I'll get, be good enough or I'll be the main one. And my brain made all sorts of stories, right, about what was possible or... He was like candy, right? Like a little bit was a, a reward and that was good enough. I didn't feel like the universe owed him to me or I just felt lucky to get a little bit. When's the time you felt closest to Joe? The one time I remember the most was the time when we went to the pantry after work and he slid this envelope across from me and he said, this is who I am. And I opened it up, and it was this piece of paper. It was his handwriting, and it said something like, um, so he was trying to tell a story. It's something like, people will ask you, what was it like to be in prison? But they don't really want to know. The idea was he was trying to create a dialogue of the someone asking someone else, like, what was it like in prison? And the guy, like, no one wants to know really what it's like in prison. And I felt so honored at that moment when he gave it to me because I felt like he was really sharing himself with me. And so the the most wonderful thing that can happen in a relationship is when someone hands you their soul. Like there was a glimpse into the truth. Nobody has slid their story across the table to me. <laughs> It's funny when you say that. Like, I think about Joe sliding something else across the table. Yeah. Which is the first time that he robbed a bank and he slid a note. Right. Right. It's um, when you're a child and your parents abandon you, you will do anything for love. And it feels like you're stealing it because um, uh, you're not worthy. And so there's many, many ways to try to buy or steal or negotiate for love and one way is intimacy and so I think for Joe like that was a chess move sliding the paper sliding the essay to you is a chess move yeah like I got her so in a way it was kind of the same motion totally yeah but when you're dealing with someone who's damaged they have the tools that they have, right? And so for me, that doesn't make it any less valuable because it's still a human being calling out for love. Whether you're stealing a heart right. or stealing money from a bank. Right, what he's saying is, please love me. And Heparin is like a lot of people in this podcast, she's a writer. Her most recent book is You Don't Look Adopted. We'll be right back. Part two. First time in. So, Joe... You got arrested after that first bank robbery, but not for the bank robbery, for all the other small, petty things that you'd done. But all those things added up, and you got sentenced. What was it like the first time you went to prison? I got to tell you, my, my, I was quivering. My lips were... <laughs> you know, and I was like, I'm trying to really hold it together. But I remember, man, I was pathetic. And I got the sentence, they sent me to Chino... Chino was just like a reception center. 
So it's just a bunch of guys just waiting to figure out what's going to happen to them. So there's guys who are serious offenders there and guys like me who are only going to do like, you know, a year and a year and a half. And there's guys, but you're all on the same reception thing. So it's really turbulent. Now I drive up to Chino and um, it's just nothing but trollos from all over Southern California. Is every little trollito who gets arrested, like, you know, got sentenced. That's it. And I'm, about, I'm around a bunch of little gangbangers, and I don't have a gang at all. Everyone's vying for power. There's a lot of guys and a lot of politics there. I knew none of it, but I knew the one thing, which is I need to establish that I'm not somebody you fuck with. And it's hard because I look like a lame. I've got glasses, preppy glasses. I don't have a gang. I don't have anyone to raise their hands for me. I'm going to have to do it myself. So we drive up there. And I remember there was this guy and he was being a loudmouth. I actually don't even think he was Mexican. There's an interesting phenomenon about that. But he hung with the Mexicans. But I think he may have been Persian or something like that. So he was trying to play the Mexican thing. I thought this guy was obnoxious. I think we were playing handball or basketball, and he kept bumping up, whatever, something to upset me about him. And I I thought he was a lame. I mean, for, to be honest with you, he wasn't even Mexican. It was like some, some, some other who was hanging with the Mexicans and wanted to prove himself. So in this situation, we just have to end up fighting, just slinging our dogs. And I end up slinging my dogs on this guy. He drops, and when he falls, he's like, like kind of crawling around on his hands and knees. And I, I straddle him. And then I reach under his chin, reach around under his chin. That sounded weird, but I reach around under his chin. And I come around with my other hand, I start pummeling his face. I mean, and knocking him out of his skull. He's one of the first guys that I sat on him, like I rode him like a horse. Like I was on his back and he's on all fours. Just, I mean, I devastated him. So I, people were like, oh, okay, this kid's got heart. And you're thinking this whole time, you need to make a statement. You, you, you know that other people are watching. I know, and of course, because there's a bunch of guys around there right there. And they're, and, 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 and I'm making, and I am making a statement. That's all you want to do when you get to prison. Like, I got heart, don't mess with me. If you mess with me, you're going to see a lot of your blood. That's all you want. And so that was cool. I got fine. I was treated fine there. I, I showed that even though I'm not a gang member and this guy had the bald head and all the gang things and the tattoo, whatever, I was able to like take him out and dispatch him. And then I was like fine there. In fact, I got along really good with everyone after that. And then they sent me to CRC. I go to the next place, California Rehabilitation Center. And low, it's like a low-level prison. I mean, it's still dangerous because there's a bunch of cholos there. And, um, and, and you know, it still has all the danger. It's, it's dangerous in a different way. Like, nobody really gets killed there, but guys get stabbed, and certainly guys get, you know, jumped a lot. And guys, it's just and you don't even need that. You can just get your ass, you know, stuff taken all the time. So um, it was, you know, it's prison. So I get to this place. And you are allowed um, 30 pound package, I think it was back in the day. I don't know what they have now. Okay, so this is the early 80, 84, something like 85. You can have cigarettes, three cartons of cigarettes, cans of tuna, um, jeans. In those days, you could wear your own Levi's. I think it's, and now they have uniforms, they don't even have that. Um, you have magazines, Playboy, Penthouse, that kind of thing, books. But you can get, you know, you get a good size thing, right? A bunch of ramen noodles and stuff. All that to say, by the time my package comes, I'm thinking, I might be in trouble here because I have to carry my package from over there all the way over here. I have no homeboys to walk with me. 
and there's some thieving motherfuckers in this in this prison. I look like a lame. I know I look like a lame because I haven't even started doing any push-ups or nothing. So I'm just skinny noodled little guy. And this, you know, and and so eventually I knew I was going to have to fight here too. I just knew that or stab someone. It's just uh, that's a given. But now you have this pressure because this package is coming, so you need to show that. So now I have a package coming, and this is where I feel people are going to take advantage of me. And let me tell you exactly why. Um, <clears throat> there was this one kid from uh, from uh, Almani, El Monte. Um, this guy started befriending me, talking to me, coming on my my bunk, and he looked like a lame himself. But he hung out with the Cholos from El Monte, Florida. That's where he's from. El Monte. I said, oh, I used to live in Pico Rivera, right next door. And uh, so he's like, yeah, my family's there. Now, here's the thing. He was also half Mexican, half Guatemalteco or from El Salvador or something like that. Nicaragua, I don't remember. But he wasn't full Mexican. And to me, that meant, some, that meant something in my parochial mind at that time, right? So it's like, all right. So this dude in his hood, he's not full Mexican. And they're sending this dude to me. I don't know who. There's a lot of guys in here, and there's look like guys. Some guys look like shot callers, and some guys don't. And this guy doesn't look like a shot caller, but he's here and he's trying to befriend me, walk me to chow. My whole thing is, you know, I'll walk with this guy to chow. We'll walk the yard. I don't have any problems with him because whatever buddy anybody thinks is going on, I know nothing is going on. I'm not. My guard's not down. I see that this could be the move. Eventually, this is going to be the move against me. So I get notified that my package is there, and I know that he had to go work during that day. So I shoot out over there when he's got to go work. I get my package. Um, I take my package back, lock it in the in the locker, and then I get on the bunk and I'm just reading a book. And this guy comes in and and he walks up to me, he walks past me or whatever, and then he, he talks to people. I don't know. He comes up to me. Hey man, I heard you got a package. Yeah, yeah, I got a package. Man, bust out those cookies, man. I said, no, nah, man, I busted. Well, I bought some of those chips, man. I'll be an asshole. No, man, you ain't got nothing coming, man. He's like, man, that's fucked up, man. I said, yeah, man. Yeah, it's going to be fucked up. That's what it is. You ain't got that coming. No, oh, man. So he leaves. Then he comes back and he's like, hey, man, watch you at least let me take a look at the Playboy, man. Let me get my porno. All right, all right. All right. So get him, get him my Playboy magazine. I don't have a problem with that. He can jack off. I don't care. So I go a couple of days later, and he's seated on his bunk, and he hasn't brought back my magazine. And I go up to him, and I say, uh, hey, man, where's my magazine? He said, uh, I sold it. I said, what? I sold it. And that's it. That's the moment. He's telling me, you're paid, punk. Fuck you. I took your shit. What are you going to do about it? And I said, all right, all right. Stay right here. No, no, fuck it. Let's set it off now. Fuck you. You stay here. I'll be right back. He didn't want me to leave because he thought I was going to go get a knife. I want to leave because I want him to think I'm going to go get a knife. I ain't got no knife to get. I don't know fucking nobody there. But what I do is I go to the, um, I go to the chapel in the prison. And I'm sitting there in that chapel, and I'm thinking, man, I got to fuck him up. I need to confront this, like, right now. No trying to negotiate and whatever. Now, fuck that. He told me that he wants—he took—she stole my shit. There's only one thing that needs to happen. 
What do you think would happen if you didn't confront them? So if I don't confront them, there's several things that happen. Mexicans would say, okay, you're a lame Mexican, and we get to do to you whatever the fuck we want. We can stab you. We can make you suck our dicks. We can Every time you get something, we'll just bust open your locker and, fuck, and take your shit. Like, they will make my life hell. Um, and so what I need to establish is I ain't that Mexican. I'm another Mexican. So... I, um, I'm looking up at the cross of Jesus hanging on that cross in the chapel. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I need to do. I need him to see a lot of his blood. And I need a lot of other people to see his blood. I need people who's ever watching to know, fuck with your lawyer, and there will be blood. And maybe if possible, some part of your body will all take it. So... I'm like, okay, cool. I got to smash his head then into a mirror. I got to smash his head if I can into the sink. I got to like break him in some ways that are really damaging, right? So I was upset, but I wasn't yet peak rage. So what I did in that chapel was I started remembering all these humiliations from my childhood. These three guys jumped me and my dad came and told me I needed to get in the car we were going to go look for them and he was going to make me beat them one by one like there's all these humiliations from my childhood Mr. Latrell. I'm not happy with your performance and so I'm pulling out all these memories and they're so humiliating but rage just boop this is the thing that I would do from, from then on which is whenever I needed to get some boost some, of power uh, robbing banks or whatever to push past the fear that I would inevitably feel before when I was driving there I would pull out these memories this is the first time that I actually pulled it out like a religious medallion and just rubbed them for fucking power and they incited me and I was just fucking cause ready for battle you know you feel like King Kong you know you're primed like <laughs> like nothing can fuck with you you feel like it's a kind of um grandiosity we all have energy you know you believe in energy you got full you know protons in you and neutrons and all kind of other shit i don't know what else and you but you got shit right um we all have energy in our in our atoms and this kind of thing feels like your your atoms are fucking on steroids you're just you feel like like a monster just and you feel your energy will slice people in half. Like just nobody can handle the energy that you will just exert. And so I had that confidence going into it. So I go in there, call him. Come on, let's go. Let's do your thing. Hands in the pocket, all chilling. Take my hands out. He walks in. I was like, all right, man, let's set it off. Whatever, something like that. And he puts his gloves up like he's ready to box. I thought, oh, this is cute. And the first move I make, I put my hands up, step to him, and I kick his in the balls as hard as I can with my boots. And I kind of carry his nuts into his stomach. I mean, I don't think I've ever hit anyone in the nut kicked in. I've kicked a lot of men in the nuts. That's a good move of mine, choking and nut kicking. I carry his nuts on the tip of my boots so deep inside. I don't think I've ever kicked anyone that cleanly. And he just drops. He's got no fight in him anymore. Right there, first move. And then I proceed to just fuck him up. At one point, I have to lift him up. So that I could choke him against the wall. Because I was trying to, remember I told you I was trying to, I wanted to get his head and smash against the sink or against the, the mirror. But I'm just, I just, I can't move because he's still too big. And he won't, he won't like go that easily. 
but he's resisting so I'm like fuck it I'm choking his neck and I I have my it's almost like I'm 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 choking him sideways so my my mouth is right by his ear and I'm like ah, and I just start biting on his ear and then I pull away and I just felt like my 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 teeth just like slid off his ear you know just like ah, as I was tugging off and then I looked at his ear and it's cartilage so it doesn't gush like like squirt but I had bitten out the top of his ear and I feel something in my mouth oh shit so I spit and uh and he was just like wincing he wasn't even like crying he was just like and I'm choking the fuck out of this guy and then I hear blacas blacas blaca is um Spanish for um the badge but it's also the, the, the slang for a cop. So I start walking out of the bathroom. I let him go and just leave him there. And he's like in the bathroom rinsing off his face and his ear. And he's like fucked up. Um, and I walk, as soon as I walk out, this really small dude, his name was Tiny. So there it is there, right? Um, but Tiny's like, hey man, sit right here. Like literally there's a bunk right outside there. And he says, sit here. And I straddle the bunk. And he sits on the other side of it, and he lays out a checkerboard. <laughs> and then a, another homeboy next to him is like, here, man, change your T-shirt. You got blood on it. So I take my T-shirt off. Another, like, all of a sudden, I got homeboys. I don't know who they are, right? I don't know what the fuck's going on. And then um, and then the guard doesn't – it's not – it's a, a false, you know, false alarm. And and then Tiny he gets up, and he's looking around or whatever. And, and I'm just fucking <sighs> – you know, the adrenaline's going, pop, and I'm, but I'm confused too. Like, how the fuck? Who are they? These guys I thought were his homeboys. I thought they were banging his play. I used to see him talk with him. I thought maybe they were behind it as well. But now they're all my buddies helping me get away with the crime. And, and, and Tiny's standing there now, and he's like, Check it out, homeboy, man. Spend some, man. We, we got we read you wrong, man. You got a long heart, youngster. And, you know, man, uh, we're the ones who sent him after you, man. And we, and we were in the wrong, man. Dispenser. So what we're gonna do is uh, we open up his locker. We just broke in. So uh, you got first dibs on the shit, man. <laughs> I was like, what? So I go over the. All right, thanks, man. Like, yeah, 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 go on, man. Whatever you want. So I get some colored pencil. I get my Playboy magazine bag. I get like some jeans, and you know, I get some shit out of there. Some smokes. And they're like, all right, man. You guys can have the rest. And he said, yeah, no problem. So. Yeah, but I fucked him up good. Uh, I was just, I was just trying to survive, and uh, and I did, I, I I survived. So, so how long were you in prison? So it was about twenty two months, and um, I started finding out what being in prison was like, and it was fine. It was just a, it was like a really violent camp. <laughs> like you get you just had fun you know made friends and moved forward and worked out and there was a lot of laughing a lot of just there was some danger but it was fine it was fine but mostly what it was i was preparing for when i got out i knew one thing after robbing that initial bank i could not wait to get out and rob a shitload of banks that's all i was gonna do nothing else just banks You've been listening to episode one of The Bank Robber Diaries, First Time Out. This is season one of The Score from ACAST Studios and Western Sound. If you like this show and you want to hear more like it, 
you should subscribe. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, which is where I listen to my podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Executive producers are me, Ben Adair, Joe Loya, Veronica Taylor, and Susie Warhurst. Producers are Cameron Kell, Haley Fox, and Stephanie Aguilar. Original composition and sound design by Dan Leone. Production assistance from Annette Runhell. Mixing by John Evans Evans. Next up, episode two, Mama's Boy. Stay tuned.